before I record each episode of this podcast, the script is fact-checked by the Daily Princetonian's intrepid copy editors. While editing the last episode on Sarah Bakewell's How to Live, they marked two of the passages from the book that I quoted to be fact-checked. I was confused because, well, I, I quoted them. Why would they need to check those? Lo and behold, they were wrong. Only slightly wrong, I replaced the word the with the word this, but wrong indeed. You heard the correct quotes in the podcast two weeks ago. This whole fiasco could have been avoided if I had taken the time to properly cite the book. Citations both prove that you've done your work and make it easy to check. Anthony Grafton's book, The Footnote, digs into the history of citation. I sat down with him to talk about his book, how history is made, how we understand the past, and the nature of truth. The humble little footnote is behind it all. Listen in. episode, we'll be talking about The Footnote by Anthony Grafton. Anthony Grafton is the Henry Putnam University Professor of History here at Princeton. He's approaching half a century teaching here and is an expert on the history of the book and the history of history. Grafton's interest in footnotes began when he was a student at the University of Chicago in the early 70s. So this, this actually went back you know, to a point in my life when I was very young. It actually also, though, went back to the point in my life when I found out that footnotes had a history. As, as an undergraduate, I read Pascal's Provincial Letters, in which he rips a great many Jesuits, new ones, for the uh, hypocrisy of their moral philosophy and their theology, and he gets into magnificent uh, quarrels with them. And one of the things they try to do to show that he's accusing them unfairly is to say, but I have the book you've cited and what you cite isn't there. Later, in the summer of 1993, he traveled to Germany to work at a think tank at a university in West Berlin. In the fall, newspaper reporters swarmed over this think tank to interview the visiting scientists and scholars. And, you know, this is every bit you can imagine that every fall when the new, new group of researchers arrive at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, that the New York Times and the Washington Post sent reporters to interview them. And that was basically the equivalent. And I happened to talk to a wonderful reporter for a slightly smaller paper, say the Philadelphia Inquirer back in the day when the Inky had a fair amount of cultural coverage which in the 90s it still did. And uh, she was working for the Frankfurter Rundschau and she interviewed me and sort of said, so what are you working on? And I said, oh, very cool stuff, astrology, dream interpretation, amazing things in the Renaissance. She said, oh, boring, Foucault did all that. Haven't you got anything else? <laughs> and I, so I said, well, I have this article on the history of the footnote. And she said, footnote, the history of the footnote. Now that's, that's really interesting. 
So I gave her a copy of this article. And the next day, a friend of hers who was an editor at a major German publishing house called me up and said, will you write me a book about the history of the footnote? Now, I hear what you're saying. A book about footnotes. What could be more boring than that? My roommate thought much the same thing. I was reading Grafton's book a few weeks ago, sitting on the floor of our common room. He asked what I was reading. The footnote, I told my roommate. It's a book about, you know, footnotes. What? He asked. I told him again. It's a book about footnotes. Fittingly, most of the pages are at least a third footnotes, and many are half or more. Many of the footnotes are written almost entirely in Latin or French or German, only one of which I can read. My roommate laughed. What? What's the point of all those? I didn't understand. He looked at me then, looking for all the world as if he had me beat in this battle of wits. He said, Have you even looked at any of those sources? Were any of those footnotes useful at all? Indeed, no, I had not. I finished the rest of the book without ever having an inkling to dig into any of those sources that lined the bottom of every page like fallen snow, and I glossed over lots of the German ones just because I couldn't even read them. But I told my roommate that footnotes are still useful, I think, and still interesting. Here's the argument I made to my roommate in favor of the footnote. For one, footnotes show that a historian's done their work. Grafton crafts an analogy that puts it very well. Quote, Like the high whine of a dentist's drill, the low rumble of the footnote on the historian's page reassures. The tedium it inflicts, like the pain inflicted by the drill, is not random but directed, part of the cost that the benefits of modern science and technology exact. This line is a testament, first of all, to Grafton's prose. It's slick and flashy, but without gimmick. He brings flavor to every sentence. Additionally, this line highlights the importance of footnotes. Even if you don't read them, there's still visual proof on every page that the historian's done their job. In Grafton's words, they convince the reader that the historian has done an acceptable amount of work, enough to lie within the tolerances of the field. Grafton quotes historians from the past who thought much the same thing. Leopold von Ranke, a central figure of Grafton's book, said, We will construct history from the accounts of eyewitnesses and the most genuine and direct sources. Since Ranke, it's been agreed that history requires evidence, and evidence must be well cited. The footnote, according to Ranke, is history. And footnotes are a tool for younger historians to show they know what they're doing. They're a weapon of truth. Ranka wrote, I felt citation was indispensable in the work of a beginner who has to make his way and earn confidence. Edward Gibbon, the eminent English historian and author of the history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, found in the writings of Pierre Ligorio evidences of candor which predisposed me to view him with some favor. Footnotes 
earn you the confidence of your readers and fellow scholars. Footnotes are, first and foremost, a trust device. With footnotes all over the page, it's tough to think a historian's wrong. Footnotes can go too far. There were many texts in the 17th and 18th centuries that were like icebergs. A few sentences of writing would float above the water with a dark mass of footnotes beneath. Can uh, uh, can his, can a historical analysis or or a, 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 a can can a work of history sort of can it be boiled down to an exact? science then that is that is just like here are the facts and here what is or that does that become no longer no longer history itself um uh, i wonder if there's like a border there of when too much footnotes just becomes uh uh you just become a a list of facts instead of instead of a, a book of history well it becomes like the the map in a story by borges which is the same size as the land it represents mm-hmm. Uh, there, you know, you, you, one of the things history does is condense. Mm. Another thing is to put a literary shape. The great Hayden White, may, you know, spent the latter part of his life arguing that history uses literary forms to tell stories, uh, which I think is absolutely true. I don't, unlike White, I don't think that's necessarily the only thing that it does or the, or even the chief thing. It's one of the things that it does, mm-hmm. but it certainly does that. So people write histories in different forms. Historians try to be accurate, but Grafton thinks truth is only an ambition. It's uh, it's an aspiration. Mm-hmm. And we know we never achieve it, but we might asymptotically approach it. Mm-hmm. So, but veracity is only a condition. Historians sometimes tell stories that have little basis in the sources, primary or secondary. It's no accident that the words history and story come from the same root. They were the same word in Middle English and in fact are still the same word in modern French. Some historians, like Guicardini, wrote entire stories that didn't exist, but still had historical significance. Ranka, the historian I talked about earlier, did much of the same thing. He crafted literary narratives too, but he would often cite entire sources that related to stories he had written himself. According to Grafton, this gave the reader two kinds of authenticity, the literary and the documentary. History was a form of inquiry as well as a form of narrative. Narrative sometimes can tell the story better than the facts can. And if it gets the same point across, what's the difference? But can a history that is literary be factual? Or, to think of that question from the other side, does citing something make it true? And how important is truth anyway? Truth, or at least what we think is true, is not a simple concept. It's always twisted through the eye of the beholder. 
Grafton notes that since the Iliad and the Odyssey were written down, writers were changing and adding lines to fit political and personal ends. In written histories, quote, the truth bounced and flew as hard and at times as wildly as a tennis ball at Wimbledon, wrote Grafton. What we say is true is always the product of our biases. And on top of their biases, historians make errors all the time. But well, you'd be yeah. astonished at how easy it is to make a mistake. So mm-hmm. I was working, um, there, there was a, a passage in a 16th century treatise that really interested me and one of my students. And she and I knew that the original manuscript of this was at an archive in, in uh, Maidenhead in Kent. And we met there one day as we were both in England doing research and we got this out and we found the passage and it turned out there was a really interesting marginal annotation there. And we took pictures and we copied the thing out and we worked on it and we went off and had lunch. And then we came back and checked it again and took more pictures from every angle. And uh, we went away and uh, about a year later, um, one of us wrote something about it and the other checked in the picture and saw that we had transcribed it completely wrongly. Mm-hmm. It hadn't affected the argument, but we had just made a complete blooper. I, so, I will... And that's something which, you know, it didn't affect the argument. So it wasn't as if we unconsciously or consciously pushed the text to say something that would favor what we what we wanted to say. And it, it was just sheer okay, somehow we managed to get that wrong. So what we take to be true can be smudged by ideology or just plain wrong. And sometimes narrative can be better than original facts. With this in mind, how do we make an evidence-based history? Historians like Dethau and Kircher provide potential answers. Dethau tried to make a collaborative commentary on his text. Grafton writes, where he had left holes in his narrative or saw the prospect of new ones, he begged for help. Where he had made mistakes, he asked for correction. Scholars of every party weighed in. When Kircher wrote, he let competing ideas share the page. Even when the primary sources he reproduced contradicted each other, wrote Grafton, he simply copied them and left his reader to worry about the discrepancies. Grafton's answer to the dilemma of historical truth is multitude. The only way we can attempt to understand the past is by bringing everything together. Sources bias toward all sides, extra sources to defend against potential error, sources both uber-narrative and uber-factual. Grafton writes that, quote, only the use of footnotes enables historians to make their texts not monologues, but conversations in which modern scholars, their predecessors, and their subjects all take part. Truth must be crowdsourced. To understand history is to see the contradictions, interplay, and conversation between all the sources. And the most efficient, most rigorous, and most dependable way to create that crowd of sources is through the humble, the boring, and the mighty footnote. And that was the argument for the footnote I gave to my roommate. He says he was convinced, but I think he was just being nice. But that's the point.
Listener, this has been my argument in favor of the footnote, but take me with a grain of salt. I'm just one source. podcast was written and recorded by me, Gabriel Bear, and was produced under the 145th Managing Board of the Daily Princetonian. It was edited by Cammy Lee and produced by Franny Block, with production help from Isabel Rodriguez. Special thanks to Professor Grafton for speaking with me for today's episode, and of course to the Daily Princetonian copy team. As always, copy saves lives. Have a book you want us to review or want to talk about a previous episode? Send us an email at podcast at dailyprincetonian.com. For the Daily Princetonian, this has been Bookish. Have a great day and keep reading.